Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast, and in this special bonus episode, I am talking all things Spider-Man with longtime friend of the podcast Trey of MCU Need to Know. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me for updates and behind the scenes extras at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show this holiday season by purchasing some There Was an Idea merchandise from Spring. Link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Today, I am joined by Trey of MCU Need to Know to discuss all things Spider-Man. When this episode hits your ears, we will be less than a week away from the release of Spider-Man No Way Home, the third solo Spidey movie in the MCU, and Tom Holland's sixth appearance as Peter Parker. And today we are going to discuss some of our favorite, and maybe least favorite, characters, depictions, and moments in Spider-Man movie history. But first, Trey, how are you feeling tonight? I am so excited. I was excited already to be here because I love getting to work with you. But then now that you framed it, we are so close to No Way Home. And so that has just doubled the excitement. Yeah. And Trey, you know, I am going to make an assumption at this point that many listeners of There Was an Idea are familiar with you and your voice from your many appearances here on this show, as well as your podcast that you do with Jude, MC You Need to Know. I know that you guys are currently covering Hawkeye each week, but I know that you also have a couple of special Spider-Man episodes. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah. So I think the most recent one uh, we've done is, uh, I think it was in September or early October, we had the chance to actually meet up in person because we we do live uh, far away, me and Jude. And so whenever we met up, we thought, hey, let's sit down and record a live reaction commentary track for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. So uh, that's one of the more recent special Spider-Man uh, podcast episodes that we've done, which was really a lot of fun uh, to to revisit that, not only for for our own personal viewing, but as a different format than what we do on the podcast. And the uh, the other episode that we've been talking about, Jude actually brought this up. It is very funny that at the beginning of this year, in January of 2021, we did an episode called Is Spider-Man 3 Too Crowded? And this was way before we knew any of the information that was coming out. Uh, we didn't know the title. We didn't know too many confirmed actors and, and villains. And it's it's very funny to see how close we came. Uh, and <laughs> to tease that a little bit, we ended the podcast by making a guess on what the title would be. And Jude's was No Place Like Home, which I am just astounded how close he got. Very close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the commentary track you guys did for Raimi's Spider-Man uh, 2002 film is really delightful. I enjoyed every minute of listening to that commentary track. And I definitely listened to your Is Spider-Man 3 Becoming Too Crowded episode back when you first dropped it um, as, a, as a loyal listener of the show. But it's been a while. And as you said, there's been so much news that's come out, so many announcements, trailers, and so on since then that I'm definitely going to be revisiting that episode before before next week. So thank you for that. And speaking of things that we're revisiting before next week, as I said, we are here today to talk a little bit about the depictions of Spider-Man in not just the MCU, but in other films. And I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on comics as well in our discussion today. Before we get into that, what is your relationship to Spider-Man, the character? Oh, wow. 
Spider-Man is the, because I've talked about it on your podcast before. It really wasn't until Iron Man that my interest in superheroes became more than superficial. And and not to discredit Spider-Man, but Spider-Man is that name that is so big that everybody knows who Spider-Man is without really knowing the details. Mm -hmm. So growing up, Spider-Man was that window into something more because, you know, I watched the cartoons, which I enjoyed. Uh, I played the numerous video games that came out. And of course, the Sam Raimi films themselves really helped establish like, oh, I love this character. So for me, Spider-Man has been that gateway to uh, a world of superheroes that even if I wasn't ready for it, it was a good on-ramp. So I, I've, I've been fascinated with the character from a very young age. I love your usage of the term on-ramp because I can definitely relate to that. Growing up, I wasn't reading comics. I did see the X-Men film that came out in 2000 because I was a fan of the X-Men cartoon when I was a little kid. I, you know, I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I remember the Spider-Man animated series that was airing in the 90s as well. And so these things were always around. I was very taken with the first X-Men film when I saw it, but I did see it in 2000 when it came out. At the time, I was 11 years old. So I didn't, it definitely left an impact on me, but I wasn't mm -hmm. quite ready for that world yet. And then Spider-Man coming out in 2002, I was 13 at that point. I had a little bit more sense of what I was consuming in terms of media. I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I read a lot of magazines growing up, like a lot of teen magazines and entertainment magazines. And I remember the casting announcements about Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst and uh, James Franco. And these were all, you know, young, cute people who they would have like these pictures of in the magazines and stuff. And so I, I was consuming a lot of this. And I remember, I vividly remember like at one point in one of these magazines, they were announcing the release of the first film. And uh, I forget which month it was in 2002. Do you know? I want to say May. Okay. That sounds about right. It felt like a spring, summer thing. And I remember in this magazine, it had like the projected release dates for Spider-Man 2 and 3. And I just remember they're like sitting there and thinking like, man, like... 2004 feels so far away from now, like when this next movie is going to come out. And um, I just, yeah, I just have a vivid, vivid memory of that. And and I would say that Spider-Man, the Raimi trilogy, um, as well as this was a couple of years earlier, but the um, Star Wars prequels was kind of my first real foray into franchise entertainment. We're like, oh, there's going to be another one and it's connected to this um, and all of that. So Spider-Man was very much a, a, an on-ramp for me as well into, into this world, along with a, a couple of other things, as I mentioned. I remember going to Universal Studios as a young kid and the Spider-Man ride was so fun. So he's he's never been like my number one favorite hero, but he's always been there. <laughs> um, <and laughs> like, like he's he's Spider Man. Like you can't get away from him. Um, he's such a such a cultural icon. And I, I think what contributes to that is just again because I don't want I don't want to discredit from Spider Man because I do think there's a lot of nuance. But mm -hmm. at a quick glance, I think he is easily. Or he is an easy superhero to take in what he does. All right. He's a, he has spider powers, he swings, mm -hmm. and he's super strong. So it's easy to just kind of get that at a glance without having to go deeper. But that's what makes Spider-Man special. That is that if you do go deeper, you are rewarded with such a rich character. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's that intersection of accessibility and but also there being something uh, a deeper well to dig into for the, those people who really want to and uh, I actually want to speak about 
those two things in conversation with each other, specifically as it relates to one Spider-Man movie in particular later on in our conversation, but I I won't reveal which one just yet. Um, (laughs) So Spider-Man and Peter Parker are not necessarily 100% the same thing, right? There's Peter Parker and there's Spider-Man. And what is so captivating about his story is the relationship between those two parts of his identity, a question that I'm interested in digging into a little bit more is like, what makes Peter Parker, Peter Parker? Who is Peter Parker at his root? What do you think? What are those qualities that are always consistent within Peter Parker, despite the many different portrayals we've seen of this character across comics, animated series and live action? So I'm actually going to borrow this phrasing from um, this person by the name of Brian Inatar who was one of the creative leads on the Insomniac Spider-Man game that came out on the PlayStation, I think in 2017, 2018. Um, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about when they were developing that game, the thing they focused on the most was getting at that core element of Peter Parker Mm. so that that could influence this Spider-Man game. And the thing that he said that has stuck with me is that Peter Parker is someone who juggles six plates on five sticks. And I think that is like at the root who Peter Parker is because, you know, he does always have the best of intentions, but he's not impervious to bad decision making. So whether that be through not recognizing his own social limitations or plain making human mistakes, he kind of creates and solves his own problems. And it's a relatable in a way. So, you know, you mentioned how there it peter parker and spider-man aren't necessarily the same person i think that's what makes peter special is that duality where he tries to lead both lives and the compass for which both of those lives have is the responsibility to be a good person when i was thinking about this question that was sort of what i came down to too i'm like well peter parker is good yeah (laughs) he is good because he tries and he strives to be good and he makes difficult choices and as you said they don't always work out but he always, you know, to to borrow kind of a line from um, Into the Spider-Verse, right? He always gets up. He's experienced yeah. loss. He always gets up. He messes up sometimes royally. He always gets up. And these are things that I think have been consistent across certainly the the live action films, be they the Raimi, the Webb, or the, why am I blanking on the director in the MCU? Uh, Watts. Watts, thank you. <laughs> the Raimi, the Web, or the Watts iterations. Um, and I'll include into the Spider-Verse in that as well. Now, my knowledge of the animated series, I have seen episodes, plenty of episodes as a kid of like the 80s, 90s animated series. I've seen episodes of the very first animated series as well. I am not particularly familiar with Spider-Man comics. And I have recently as I've spoken about on the podcast, gotten into comics. I have read uh, some Hawkeye and some Black Widow, and I just picked up the Immortal Iron Fist, which I'm very excited about. Trey, do you have any connections to comic portrayals of Spider-Man? I can't say that I do. Uh, The comic side of the superhero universe has unfortunately been something that I have not been able to tap into. Um, I've gotten better in recent years. I think we've talked about this before, where I am trying to let the MCU be my first depiction of these characters. But with characters like Steve Rogers, who have retired in the MCU, I am now trying to go back and read some of their 
comics. So um, I'm not obviously Peter Parker in the MCU is still fine about, but I I would love to revisit some of his comics uh, at some point. And this is going to be a call to listeners because I too am interested in engaging with Peter Parker on the page, with engaging with Spider-Man on the page, but I don't know where to start. And some of the yeah. other heroes that I just mentioned, I kind of knew where to start because it's like, okay, well, I was recommended to read Fraction and Aha's Hawkeye run. Oh, Fraction and Aha also made Immortal Iron Fist. Okay, let me check that out. I don't know where to begin with Spider-Man because there is just so much Spider-Man in the comics. So any listeners who have any recommendations for me and for Trey on where we might want to get started in the world of comics with Spider-Man, we would happily welcome that. Yeah, that'd be really good. But when it comes to movies, which is the focus of our discussion today, and considering what we just listed as kind of being the qualities that make Peter Parker who he is, what makes a good Spider-Man depiction then in a movie? I think it's strong relationships, whether it's romantic, friendship, or familial. I think Spider-Man is at his best when we see how his actions are influenced and how they influence other people that he cares the most about. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how that's who Peter Parker is, right? He he keeps trying. He gets up. I think that and and what I've said about these strong relationships is not exclusive to Peter Parker. I mean, that feels like that could be said across the board for a lot of superheroes. But it's the duality, I think, that he tries to live of Peter Parker and Spider-Man that makes him tick. Mm -hmm. So whenever I'm looking at the depiction of Spider-Man across all the films, the Raimi ones, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, the MCU, and Into the Spider-Verse, it always comes down to those strong relationships that he has within his respective worlds. The, The focus on relationships is not something that I immediately thought of when I was thinking about this question. So I'm glad that you brought that in. The things that I was thinking of, though, are related and I think deepened by by that understanding of how he is in relationship to others. And and that is that in a Spider-Man depiction, I'm looking for someone who feels like a real teenager, if that's the part of his story that we're looking at. And I do know in the comics that there are stories that focus on other parts of his life. But I think that feeling like a real teenager is important in a depiction to me. And I think to your point about relationships, that's something that we see. There is something that, uh, who is Peter Parker at his root? Well, he's always crushing on girls, right? <laughs> like we see this <laughs> in every depiction. It's key to his story, right? Is like figuring out who he is in relationship to other people, particularly these girls he might be interested in and his friends and his family. And there is something very, uh, it's a coming of age story ultimately, right? I, I think that if you have a Spider-Man who is capturing all of the angst and hope and conflicting nature of a coming-of-age story, then that's going to be a strong depiction. And the other thing that came to my mind are that key elements in a Spider-Man depiction are also the friendly part and the neighborhood part. <laughs> yeah. Um, right? Like, he's he's a... a nice kid. He's a good kid, right? He's witty. And he that's that's the friendly part. Uh, he cares about his community. He cares about those relationships, to your point. And the neighborhood is crucial. Yeah. And I mean, because that's, that's what a common sentiment, even if it's not always 
reiterated, there is the spirit of the with great power comes great responsibility that was, uh, you know, crucial to the character and has been, you know, part of that core for all of them. But he keeps it jovial, which I think is a monumental task because he is going through a lot of, you know, suffering of, of wanting to be normal, wanting to have these regular relationships and then also juggling the responsibility of like going out there and saving the day. So the fact that he is witty, he is friendly and and helping out the the regular neighborhood, that's special to his character. It never really seems to bring him down like you think it would. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the MCU has done so successfully is that it does play into that duality of who he is. Yes, there's the the Parker Spider-Man duality. There's the I just want to be a kid who gets to go on the school trip, but also I bitch I've been to space, right? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> there are those two sides of of um, of our Spider Man in the MCU. But Spider Man is in many ways Marvel's flagship character. I was looking at the site called InsideTheMagic.net, and I'll link to this in the show notes. But they did a study based on Google Analytics. I'm, I'm sure you may have seen this where it was, it's a map of the world and it shows who is the most popular superhero in each country. Did you see that? Maybe not the one you're you're talking about specifically, uh, but I've seen conversations like that. And uh, Spider-Man is the, according to this study, and I think this was just done last year, Spider-Man is the most popular superhero in the world. Uh, so in the United States and also in the world. And Captain America, funny enough, is the most popular hero in Canada. <laughs> 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 Maybe because he's actually nice. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Um, so, in addition to the United States, Spider-Man is the most popular hero, according to Google Analytics. And however they they came up with this, however the people put together the Google Analytics, I should say, in addition to the United States, at fifty six other countries. So, in total, Spider-Man is the most popular hero in fifty seven countries. Second place. Any guesses? Strictly Marvel or across all heroes? Across all. Uh, Superman. No. Wonder Woman, 15 countries. Oh, wow. Yeah, but look at that. I mean, from 57 to 15. Right? Right. Like, that's a huge difference. And then Batman 11, Iron Man 10, Superman 6. I'll have to send this to you in addition to to putting it in the show notes. And I, I believe this was from about a year ago. So there's an article that they posted September 30th, 2021. So that not that long ago at all called why Marvel Spider-Man is the most popular superhero. And then they link back to the map that that was created, I think earlier this year. So in addition to his, his worldwide popularity, Spider-Man also apparently is the most profitable superhero. He has uh, been responsible or his titles have been responsible for the most comic sales, merchandise sales. Would you would you say that it's safe to say that he's probably the most popular character in the MCU right now? I think that's 100% true. Yeah, I, I think before, I think you could make an argument for Iron Man, but with, with Peter Parker, I mean, it's just a whole different level. Yeah, like I remember the day that they announced he'd be joining the MCU. To to borrow a term, the internet broke. Like it was the only thing people could talk about that entire day uh, on social media, and it's just it was monumental. 
Yeah, and I think that momentum has has kept up as well. And I think especially with the the passing of Tony Stark and kind of the passing of the torch from that beloved MCU character to Peter to Tom Holland's Peter, I think uh, I think we're seeing just how significant he is. And I mean, certainly the pre-sale numbers for No Way Home tickets <laughs> suggest yeah. that as well. So I think that then kind of begs the question of like, well, what makes Spider-Man so popular? What is it about this character and his story that really resonates with people? And I think we spoke to it a little bit already in talking about how Peter Parker is such a relatable character. But is there anything else that you, you can put your finger on as to what is it about this character, this hero, that it really appeals to such a universal audience? I think it's because... I know that, again, you've mentioned this before, this isn't exclusively the case, but most often in the depictions, he's a kid and he's he's trying to keep up with the normal kid life as well as contributing to a much more adult world of superhero fighting. And so even though he has fantastical powers, which that's what superheroes shows are about, right? It's that escapism of like wanting that, um, that fantasy of having super strength, super speed, whatever it may be. But even as fantastical as Spider-Man is, they have created such a core of a human behind the mask that that's what makes him relatable. And I Mm. think, uh, across, you know, so many different countries as that, that graph depicted. Yeah. I, I'm going to borrow some phrasing from, I, I, don't even remember where I got this. It could have been a, a movie podcast I was looking to, looking at or a movie review I was looking at. So I apologize for not knowing exactly where it came from, but it stuck with me. And it was this idea that popular entertainments or where we see popular entertainment really succeed is where they hit this sweet spot that appeals to audiences a- across all ages. And what these critics were saying is that kids want to feel older and adults want to feel younger. So if you can kind of hit that sweet spot of, right, I loved this idea. I wish I could attribute it where I heard it. Um, But I I consume a lot of of reviews and criticism and things like this. So I, I can't always keep it straight in my head. But it stuck with me because if you think about a character like Spider-Man, right, like if you're a younger kid, you're seeing in him what he's struggling with in his coming of age story. And you're seeing how he's navigating this very mature world and often can't tell the people in his life. And then if you're an adult, if you're older, right, like there's something about Spider-Man that brings out that youthfulness that feels nostalgic, that feels like childhood. So I think that he really appeals in that way. And I think there's also something to the fact that it's a secret identity story, because in the MCU, we don't always have secret identity stories and uh like i am iron man in the first iron man movie completely subverted (laughs) that um but spider-man until until recently in the mcu has has remained a secret identity story and i think there's something about that that is so uh intriguing as well right It, it gets it gets audiences thinking about in some cases like dualities that we may have in our own lives yeah I mean, and that feels, again, you, you mentioned it, that coming of age, figuring out who you are. Like, I can remember being in middle school, high school of, like, trying to keep that divide of, like, who I am at school is not who I am at home and, yeah. like, trying to bridge those worlds. And I think that's, I mean, even look at No Way Home and the, the worlds that are bridging in that. Like, that is Spider-Man. He bridges all the worlds. And so I think that's another uh, relatable aspect that people find within that character. 
very recently, I uh, just to share an anecdote, I had some uh, friends from work here on Halloween or the day before Halloween for a Halloween party. It, I've talked about it before because it's when I dressed as Black Widow. It was very exciting. And yeah. <laughs> there was a friend from work brought his uh, daughter who is about four years old. So at one point I had on Disney Plus, I don't know, I was going to put on like maybe Nightmare Before Christmas or something like this and just have it on mute as ambiance for this Halloween party. This little girl, she was just like came up next to me and she just goes, Spider-Man. <laughs> I was like, what? And she's just like, Spider-Man. And, <laughs> and so her dad, my friend from work is just like, you know, we really don't know anything about Spider-Man or any of these heroes. And like, I know that's the thing that you're into. So you can be her education for that. But she comes home from school and she's talking about Spider-Man. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like there's a show on Disney Plus, Amazing Spidey and His Friends or whatever it's called. And it's it's geared toward very, very little kids. And I was like, all right, like I'll put this on for you. And she was just like completely like, all you know, tons of adults around making noise, like, you know, chatting, whatever. And she was just riveted, just watching this. This, like amazing spider-man show on mute it, it got me thinking too i'm like wow like there's this like kid in pre-k and she's coming home and like her friends are talking about spider-man and, and and i'm like in my 30s and i'm coming home and i'm talking about spider-man with my friends right you know what i mean it's just a character and a story that people are engaging with on all different levels which is just so cool to me mm-hmm <laughs> yeah, it's that that at a glance, you know who he is. Um, yeah. it's, it's special. All right. So what I thought might be fun, instead of discussing all of the Spider-Man films that have come out to date, instead of having the conversation about whether or not or the extent to which the Sony universe Spider-Man films will be integrating with the MCU moving forward, instead of litigating like, Tom Holland versus Tobey Maguire. I I wanted to kind of just approach a conversation about Spider-Man movie history since 2002. I thought the best way to do this was by taking a superlative type approach. And we'll start with our favorite depiction of Peter Parker himself. Whenever I was sitting down uh, to to look at these and, and figure out who it was, I specifically texted Jude and I said, I think I might be an MCU homer because, I mean, without <laughs> a doubt, Tom Holland. I I absolutely love him as Peter Parker. Um, you know, I, I think one of the common things uh, that Tobey Maguire gets praised for is being a good Peter Parker, Andrew Garfield being a good Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and Tom Holland really embodying them both. But there's just something about, well, it's like you said, like at the beginning, what what makes a good depiction, it is that youthfulness. And I think Tom Holland, because he actually is younger, uh, brings that youthful, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Awe of the world. Yeah. of the world. Like he's genuinely interested, genuinely excited. Like I can't help but think, um, I know this is technically a, a Spider-Man scene, but it really feels more Holland coming through the mask where he's excited about Bucky's arm. He's like, oh, cool, you've got a metal arm? Yeah. And so there's there's that aspect of Peter Parker who has genuine interest and wide eyes about the world that I think Tom Holland has captured wonderfully. Yeah, I have to agree. And he is my favorite as well. And I was thinking, okay, can I get a little bit more specific than that? Because I had the feeling you were going to say that Tom Holland was your favorite <laughs> Peter Parker as well. We are both MCU podcasters after all. Right. Um, 
But I was thinking specifically about his introduction in Civil War and specifically the scene when he says the when you can do the things that I can, but you don't. And then the bad things happen. They happen because of you. Such a strong introduction to who Holland's Parker is. And I completely agree with you. I, I think from that very first introduction in Civil War through how we have seen him grow across the films that he's been in in the MCU but not grow too much with Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker from movie one to movie two. There is this growth of like, all right, he's graduated high school and now he's getting a job and it creates some, some good angst. It creates some good storytelling opportunities, but it almost felt like too much too soon. Like we've really had time to spend with Peter Parker in high school, really going through these different life changing events, whether it be from, dating or things related to academic decathlon, whatever it may be, as well as his work with the Avengers. And he's growing up, but he's growing up slowly. And I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, even look at Homecoming, where he gets pressured into wanting to let Spider-Man make an appearance at Liz's party. Yeah. Like that is such a kid thing where it's like this is the most important thing you know I want to be cool at this party I want to go hang out with my friends and I want to have that social status changed by just the the mention of Peter Parker from Spider-Man himself and that I think is something unique to Tom Holland's depiction that he brought that aspect to the character um and I and I can link this back to what you were saying with Civil War another amazing thing about that intro is he is kind of dancing around gracefully with, you know, Tony's accusations like, oh, yeah, you're the guy in the video, right? And he's trying to dodge here and there and just deflect. And it's not until that moment where Tony's going to let Aunt May know Mm -hmm. that you see Peter Parker stand up and shoot his web. He's like, Aunt May can't find out. After everything that's happened, like, she, I just don't want to. So you see that side, that protective side of him come out just like you see the protective side of him come out at that party where instead of going to the party, he actually goes to uh, the trouble that arises in Homecoming. Right, right. And that is so, that is so Peter Parker, right? Like having to, he's he's not selfish. And I think there was some conversation when the trailer for No Way Home came out and perhaps part of the way the trailer is cut in that conversation with Doctor Strange when he's like, oh, no, like, like, I, I don't want to go through with the with this because some people need to know that I'm Spider-Man or, or, you know, I'm summarizing it poorly. But was that a, like a selfish side of Peter Parker coming out? I don't think so. I think that probably that trailer is quite misleading. I don't think they wanted to give away too much. But I think what we see with him is like every time he maybe even a little bit wants to be a little bit selfish. All right. Like I want to impress Liz or you know what? I'm going on vacation. I'm not even going to pack my suit. Right. Like he always mm-hmm. does kind of end up doing the right thing because his moral coat is so strong and because he has that sense of responsibility. His when you can do the things that I can speech is kind of the with with great power comes great responsibility, ver, you know, version in the MCU. That's always a, a, a guiding, a guiding uh, star for him that he that he follows. And it's very inspiring. Yeah. I mean, even without superpowers, setting personal boundaries is hard. Yeah. And so the fact that the goalpost of what personal boundaries are is so different for a character like Spider-Man, I think that's another aspect of that relatable um, characteristic of, of Peter Parker. Because you're right, it's 
it's not necessarily selfish to want to have some of the like, oh, I want to impress Liz. I want to have this time for myself. But he has to wrestle what it means to be Spider-Man on top of that. I think Tom Holland plays this character in such a way that it's like you admire him so much, but you also you don't envy having to be in that in that position and make those decisions and be faced with with such such loss. I mean, even thinking about the what if episode, and I understand it was different different universe peter but when he's like rattling off all of the people he's lost because in that universe it also includes aunt may it's like holy cow like how are you maintaining this optimism and this hope even in the face of all that again i know what if is a is, is a different universe and that, that character there that depiction there wasn't even voiced by tom holland so maybe that's yet an, another peter parker to just shout out in our favorite peter parker list um yeah but i think there's some of that spirit in there as well yeah, like you said, I, I I remember that moment sticking out to me in that episode. It doesn't hit you how much he has lost until you hear him plainly stated out, yeah. and he has. And the fact that he still remains chipper is a testament to Peter Parker. So then there's Spider-Man, very much going hand in hand. But there has been some popular discourse around, well, if McGuire's depiction of Parker was uh, stronger than, let's say, Andrew Garfield's. Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man was stronger. I think you and I are both in the camp of, well, Holland has both. Is Holland your favorite Spider-Man? And if so, are there any particular scenes or films that stand out in how he depicts Spider-Man? So the... It's Holland. (laughs) (laughs) I felt bad having Holland be the first two answers for, for these questions. But The scene that sticks out to me the most, you know, I was surprised to find out Far From Home got the flack it did. Like, I totally understand the criticisms, but this scene that I'm talking about is, it cemented so much about what I love about Spider-Man. And that's where at the end of the, you know, towards the end of the movie where he's fighting all those drones and he's lost all his web fluid so he can't swing up and he quickly devises a way to have like a, I can't remember what exactly it was. I think it was like a light fixture that he swings, a sh- uh, sign that he uses his shield yeah. and then one of the down drones as like a way to launch himself up to the bridge. Like you had the influence of all the different heroes that came before him that he looked up to. Like you had the hammer of Thor, you had the shield of cap, and then you had the, this one's a bit of a stretch, but it's the Stark technology. So I'll give it, but the flight of Tony Stark and Iron Man, where he, he uses all of that and finds a way to still be the hero. Even when you've taken everything away from him, like the, the, the swinging ability. So it's just that moment, I think embodied the, the perseverance of of Spider-Man. And so, yeah, that's why I think I lean towards Holland and this favorite Spider-Man depiction. Yeah, and I'm with you. I, he He's he's my favorite. I was thinking about other other Spider-Men that I wanted to, to give a shout out to, give an honorable mention to. I do very much think that Andrew Garfield looks great in the role and I just rewatched The Amazing Spider-Man. So I started in early October and I rewatched the Raimi trilogy pretty quickly and then I you know there's been a lot of other MCU content and things that I've been spending some time on including Hawkeye and Eternals <laughs> and all of that. Um rewatched Into the Spider-Verse, rewatched The Amazing Spider-Man and my big confession <laughs> is that I have never seen The Amazing Spider-Man 2. 
And it's just one of those things that it's been on my list as I've been doing rewatch to watch it. And I am absolutely going to watch it before next week because of Jamie Foxx's Electro uh, is, is going to be a part of No Way Home. So I know that I need to watch it, but I, I feel like any comment I make about Andrew Garfield today just needs to be, uh, there needs to be that kind of caveat that says I haven't seen Amazing Spider-Man 2. I do know everything that happens in it. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that. But I, I as I say, rewatching Amazing Spider-Man last month, I did think that Andrew Garfield was great. I really like the scene. Like he's in a, in, in a car at, at one point with the, um, the criminal who's responsible for Uncle Ben's death, or I think at least he thinks he's responsible for Uncle Ben's death. I can't remember exactly. And the way that he is doing the Spider-Man moves and the witty banter was very good. Um, so I, I did, I did like that depiction quite a bit, but, uh, Holland still, still has it for me. I mean, how, how can he not? And, and thinking about not even Justin in the two solo movies we've seen him in so far, but like seeing him in an infinity war, like seeing him in Endgame, like these moments have just been so, so powerful. So if I wouldn't have gone with Holland, the other one that I really, really enjoy is Peter B. Parker. Yes. Spider-Man from Into the Spider-Verse. And I think this says a lot about who I am. Like, I just love the idea of a kind of given up a little bit, which I know is so contrary to what we've talked about with with Peter Parker so far. But the idea of just kind of being a washed up Spider-Man voiced by Jake Johnson, who I love. Yes. And finding his, his way back to being that inspirational character. Like, that is such a fun arc in that movie. And it's done because clearly Miles is the star of that movie, but finding a way to bring a fresh take on Spider-Man in that movie that doesn't take the spotlight but adds plenty is is just a wonderful pic- depiction. I completely agree with you. And actually I have written in my notes here that he was he's my honorable mention as a Peter Parker, um although he could be also an honorable mention as a Spider-Man as well. Very very much enjoy Peter B. Parker and his relationship to Miles as like Again, yeah, he's kind of faced with his own choices when he's thrown into this role of mentoring Miles. Uh, really, really, I love that movie. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. All right, the the next category that I had here was favorite love interest. And it seems like a silly one, but as we said, Peter Parker is always interested in dating somebody. It's just a part of these stories. So... I can share mine first this time. It's MJ from the MCU. <laughs> and, yeah. and so far, I know we've kind of been leaning toward MCU, but here's the thing. Um, MJ, it's specifically in Far From Home. She, she can't be beat. I, she is so cool. Such a realistic teen. She's got this kind of like disaffected thing. She reads and like studies how people are acting in detention. And she's like maybe on that line of being a little bit pretentious, but like she feels very much like a smart teenager. And I just everything about her interaction with with Peter in Far From Home and how she figures out that he's Spider-Man. It's so great. And it stands in contrast, I think, to the portrayal of Mary Jane in the Raimi trilogy, who, listen, I I am as nostalgic as the next person. And I loved Kirsten Dunst in those movies. And um, she's still enjoyable to watch in that role. Kirsten Dunst is great. And there is something very lovely about Mary Jane in the original Spider-Man trilogy. But it's MJ for me. I think to speak to your your choice, 
Uh, MJ and, and Peter within the MCU, I think, feels natural because so much of the other ones, I think it just kind of we jump to that relationship because that's what the story needed at the moment. Whereas in the MCU, we watch that gradual turn from like, okay, here's this person that's kind of aloof, but you can tell MJ is is kind of interested in, in Peter, hence all the obsessive behavior and watching him from afar. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the the fruits of that in Far From Home, like it's, it's cute and I really enjoy it. But I went a, a little different so that I wouldn't be an MCU homer this entire time. Great. I have to give a lot of credit to uh, Gwen Stacy in The Amazing Spider-Man. And it's, it was, I'm not a fan. So here's my caveat. I was trying to leave with some positives, but here's my caveat. I would have walked out of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 had I not gone with a friend group because I didn't <laughs> want to be the one that left. But like, I did not enjoy that film at all. But a commonality between both of them is how the chemistry between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, because I think they were yes. dating at the time or yes, still dating. Yes, they were. Fantastic. Yeah. And so that that felt real on screen and that helped bolster the movies, uh, which I that's why I give it to Gwen Stacy on that one. Yeah. And I have her written down as my honorable mention. I wanted to comment upon Mary Jane as being, you know, the the uh, OG here. Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane in, in uh, Spider-Man, because I feel like she's such a big part of what those movies were. But my my second favorite after Zendaya's MJ is is Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy. I'm a big fan of Emma Stone. Yeah. Her work in the movie Easy A is like another great example of like somebody who's really pulling off what it feels like to be a teenager. I like I, in The Amazing Spider-Man, I like that, you know, she she knows that he's Spider-Man. They don't stretch that out. Um, like they did in the original trilogy. And of course they did in the original trilogy. Like it made sense for, for what it was at the time. Um, but their, their chemistry is, is really, really fantastic. And uh, she, she's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Favorite. I wrote favorite best friend. And, <laughs> and then I was like, well, are there really only two to choose from here? But then I thought of a third one I'm going to make a case for. Who's your favorite oh, okay. best friend, Trey? <laughs> oh, so I'm very excited to hear your case because I was in the like, oh, okay, I guess there's two. <laughs> and I'm back to my MCU Homer roots. It's yeah. Ned. And it's, I love, he gave us guy in the chair. Like back when we did the MCU draft, that was a whole category. Like it has redefined sidekicks. Like he is so supportive while also not just being second fiddle, if that makes sense. Like he, he really feels part of that core Spider-Man group in these, at least in the MCU movies, obviously, because that's where he's from. But I don't know. There's something special about Ned. And is it Jacob Batalon? Yeah, Jacob Batalon. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, he's doing a wonderful job of being that kid in friendship role. Totally agree with everything you're saying about Ned. And I love Ned very much. I was going to make a case for Gwen in Into the Spider-Verse. Because is it that a best friend in the same way as Ned or Harry? No, it's not presented in a best friend type of way. Um, it's at first presented as a bit of a love interest. So I was thinking about her in that category. But throughout the course of that movie, they very much are, I think they shift gears into a friendship. And she talks about losing her universe's Peter Parker, who she refers to as her best friend. And there's very much a, a friendship thread between Miles and Gwen. And, and it's it, not even getting to the level of a romantic thing. It's, it's hard for her to even 
be able to connect with people on the level of friends because of the loss that she suffered. And I think the connection between her and Miles Morales and Into the Spider-Verse is really very sweet. And the way that she, as well as the other iterations of of Spider-Man, you know, the uh, Spider-Man noir and uh, the the pig Peter Peter Porker, uh, they all kind of show up for Miles Morales when he's at his lowest after after his uncle has passed. And uh, I really really like Gwen in Into the Spider Verse. So hey, voiced by Haley Seinfeld, who is <laughs> uh, now in the MCU uh, in Hawkeye as well. Yeah, what just, can't she do? She's amazing, <laughs> right? Voice acting, acting, singing. I mean, she's doing it all. Yeah, I, I just to add to what you were saying about Gwen in the Into the Spider-Verse, like I don't know what their plans are regarding what the future of their relationship, whatever it may be yeah. in the sequel, but at least in the first, like I think it is special that it, it obviously starts from a place of infatuation for Miles mm-hmm. with Gwen, but you see him step into that like, oh, no, we are good friends. And so that I think that's special that they were able to start there and end up with a with a friendship like that. Yeah, totally. And so depending on where it goes in the future, maybe, you know, I it's stretching to put her in this category, but I just wanted to have a chance to talk about her here. <laughs> and I also wanted to have a chance for us to talk about some of the other characters who stand out from any of these movies. Um, so if we have a general favorite other character category, who are you picking? So I've yet to have any Raimi representation mm-hmm. in my favorite so far. So the clear answer J. Jonah Jameson. Yes. J.K. Simmons as as J. Jonah Jameson in that original one is iconic. And the thing that I like about him, especially now that we're dealing with uh, whatever version may be in the MCU who's been kind of uh, translated into being this talk show podcast type who feels a little insufferable. I think what the Raimi version did right, and again, I've only re- recently rewatched the first one, so maybe this changes by the the end of the third. But despite him being hard on Peter, I think there is still a little bit of a, a, a good compass with him, within him. So that's why I think I I really enjoyed that depiction, and I'm still on the fence with the MCU one, even though I welcome the the actor himself back. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think there's something that feels. Just a little bit more, a little less threatening, a little bit more lovable. Like he's like a lovable curmudgeon, even though like he's not necessarily fair and he's kind of not super open minded or or particularly like in touch with how other people might be feeling in, in the Raimi trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like there's still something likable about him. He doesn't seem like yeah. he's, a, he's really a threat. Whereas like seeing that scene at the end of Far From Home, it's like, oof, no, I, I, I don't want anything to do with this guy. <laughs> Um, he, he, <laughs> it seems it just, like he could be dangerous in, in, you know, his sharing of all of this, like, false information. I was going to say, maybe it's just the, the Raimi version is a nostalgic thing for us. And be. then the new one is like, okay, this is a little too close to home. You know, yeah, that, that very much might be it. Um, I had him on my list here as well as, as a, a favorite other character, as well as Aunt May from the MCU, Marissa Tomei's Aunt May, because she's fantastic as well. Also, Aunt yeah, May in Spider-Man 2, she has a moment, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May in Spider-Man 2, when she is on like the side of the building with Doc Ock. She like hits him from behind with something. Yeah, with her umbrella. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> she had so many great scenes because within that same section, you have that pivotal moment where 
uh, Doc Ock and Spider-Man are facing off and you, you see Aunt May hanging off the side of the building yeah. and it's so dramatic and, and Peter's trying to get to her and Doc Ock's keeping him at bay and then Aunt May falls and she lands on the ledge. Like she was totally fine the yes, entire it's time. Yes, hilarious. it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, good. Man, that was great. I like her in, in Spider-Man 2. In Spider-Man 3, I wasn't as as uh as taken with her but then again i wasn't really taken with as taken with any of the characters in spider-man 3 um (laughs) so maybe maybe that kind of transitions before we talk about some of our our favorites let's talk about a couple of least favorites you know on your show mc you need to know here on there was an idea we do typically lead with the positive we focus a lot on the things that we enjoy within the mcu or elsewhere and we really um we really even when we have critiques of something. We come from a, a place of love, but that doesn't mean that there aren't aspects that don't quite resonate with us as much as others. So I'm curious if you have first a least favorite villain from any of these, a villain who just didn't really land for you in their in their story or their depiction. I got to go with uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Dane DeHaan's Green Goblin. Mm. And... It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I remember just it not resonating me, resonating with me whatsoever. But I think a large problem was trying to live in the footsteps of the Sam Raimi Goblin with um, William Willem Dafoe. Iconic. Like, yeah, like that's impossible shoes to fill. So it was already slighted against him, which is unfair. That's my own personal bias but it was it just felt like after everything else that was happening in that movie it felt too shoehorned in and so it just did not work for me at all as a character yeah and it's comments like these that make me realize why i perhaps haven't seen the amazing spider-man 2 yet <laughs> um so i'll have to uh i'll have to form my opinion on on that depiction of of goblin but I was also going to go with an Amazing Spider-Man villain for my least favorite. And I was going to go with Lizard from The Amazing Spider-Man because it, not that I actively disliked Kurt Connors here or or actively disliked Lizard. It was more just sort of like I didn't feel any real connection to the character nor any real... Um, I wasn't particularly intrigued or, or compelled by by his story and in retrospect I, I don't think that the, the cgi looks that great um when he's fighting with spider-man in the school toward the end of that movie yeah so I'm, I'm gonna go go with lizard there you know i i think one that comes up sometimes is topher grace's venom in spider-man 3 who i i don't dislike as much i i just think more than anything that character didn't have time to really develop over the course of that movie because there was so much going on in, in Spider-Man 3. So I to, to go out on that limb with you and maybe go even further on that limb, whenever Venom 2 Let There Be Carnage was out, I revealed to Jude that I think I actually prefer the design of Topher Grace's Venom more than I enjoy oh, the... Okay. The Venom one. So I know I might catch some flag for that because uh, he was very shocked. Like he was in disbelief when I told him. <laughs> uh, so I have a soft spot for the Sam Rainey Venom. And I, I agree with you. What you said that I think the biggest problem is that there wasn't enough time for him because yeah. it was kind of crammed. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put uh, to for Grace Venom on, on my short list of least liked villains. All right. If we are going to stick for another moment with least favorites hate to do it but very curious to hear 
although I might have some indication already, <laughs> which is your least favorite of the movies? Yeah, if, if mentioning that I almost walked out on it <laughs> is, is not a signifier, I don't know what it is. It's Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, you know, that movie has plenty of problems. Um, I, I know you haven't seen it, uh, so I know you said you were fine with spoilers, but just broad strokes. I think it tried to set up too much before it had already... Like, it, it felt like it tried to hit the ground running and tripped. And so, instead of feeling like I was getting a good Spider-Man story, I was getting a a promise that never came true. And so, it was it was hard to stick with it for, for that reason alone. And it's... I mean, it... it I hate to say this because we know we promoted the is Spider-Man 3 getting crowded episode at the beginning. There's a feeling of snake bitten that, mm-hmm. you know, Spider-Man mm-hmm. 3 and the Raimi version, there was too many villains. And that led to to being the least favorable of that trilogy. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 also featured a pretty good amount of villains. And it ended up being uh, my least favorite Spider-Man film. And sure. so now here we are again with No Way Home. And I'm I, uh, I'm a little worried. Understandably, understandably. But, you know, the MCU is a totally different ballpark and they they rarely do us wrong. So we'll have to we'll have to keep keep our hopes up. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, I would love to say that The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is my least favorite of the Spider-Man movies because it just has not motivated me to see it yet. And even in, you know, even in the times when I have thought, oh, hey, maybe I'll, I'll finally watch it. I've wanted to rewatch one of the others <laughs> or I've wanted to watch something else. Um, so maybe de facto Amazing Spider-Man 2 is my least favorite, but that's a cop-out answer. Of the ones I've seen, it's tough because, you know, it it comes down to Spider-Man 3 or The Amazing Spider-Man. And there's something nostalgic about Spider-Man 3. There's something in that. I, I think it's sometimes, it's easy for it to be the butt of the, joke because there are a lot of memes that came out of it and there is some absolute ridiculousness in Spider-Man 3 with the dancing and the hair and the scene in the club and and those are not the reasons why Spider-Man 3 would be toward the bottom for me because I don't mind some jokes and some camp and some intentional absurdity and I do think that Raimi was going for something intentional there um, maybe just didn't totally land for everybody I, I'm kind of fine with that but ultimately with Spider-Man 3 the depiction of Peter, I think, is the problem that I have with it because even though I like that that they went to an angsty place with him, they went to they they showed that more they showed the capacity for him to be selfish a little bit more, and I think that that is theoretically interesting to show a little bit of his darker side. Uh, at many points during the movie, he was kind of just straight up acting like a jerk, and I don't necessarily yeah. want to watch that. Like that's not what I come to a Spider Man movie for, um, and. I think that there could be a way of showing a little bit more of that darker side without it just being like, he's being super mean to Mary Jane. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, and if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've seen that one. He's already leaning that way prior to the symbiote. Yes. And so, you know, everything we talked about Peter Parker being good, that feels like it flies in the face of, of who he is. And I can understand if it's like, Oh, he's been infected with the symbiote. We're seeing, that be the catalyst, not to make an excuse, but like that being a catalyst for it, um, it's a little bit more understandable. But the fact that he was already starting from that egotistical place, I think, is a hard pill to swallow yeah. uh, as 
as a Peter Parker depiction. Yeah, definitely. So that's not my favorite. Uh, although, again, there's something to watching it. Like if if it comes on TV or, or you know, I would rewatch it. Like because it's it's got a sense of nostalgia to it, and there are good parts of it. And honestly, the same with the Amazing Spider-Man. I have less of a connection with the Amazing Spider-Man, but uh, I did I did go see it in the theater, and I remember enjoying it, but not necessarily walking out and being like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to be thinking about this. Uh, and, and even still, it's the kind of movie, like I'm happy to rewatch it. I like Spider-Man story. I think there's a lot that Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone do that I enjoy a lot, but just, just not my favorite. Well, I was just gonna say one little quick thing to note. What's always special to me about the amazing Spider-Man and maybe why I have a soft spot for it. If I'm not mistaken, it came out the same year the Avengers did. Yeah. 2012, and so, right? It feels like one of the, it's a movie before the promise was delivered of the MCU. Mm. So it's like, because I mean, look at the references we've made now. Like it's the MCU. We know they're going to do it right. They've built our trust. So it was almost like seeing another world, maybe trying to compete for, for like, oh, here's the, the superhero worlds and how they can, and have their own standalone thing from the Avengers. And then of course the Avengers delivered and we, it's yeah. been hitting the ground running since. So I have that sweet, that soft spot for the amazing Spider-Man of trying, but just not quite hitting that mark. Yeah. That's interesting. That, that's cool. Put it in that historical context. I hadn't really fully considered that. Well, we spent a few minutes on some things that are not quite our favorite. If you had to say, which is your favorite Spider-Man movie of the of the eight yeah. that we have on the board here. Which one are you picking, Trey? I'm going Far From Home. I didn't, and it's so funny because I watched Far From Home, came out of it, and I was like, this is amazing. Maybe a year later, it wasn't until a year later where I started to find out, oh, people actually kind of have issues with this movie. And it's been funny to kind of go back and 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 read that as in contrast to the feelings I had coming out of that film. But I think what I love so much about Far From Home is, you know, there is issues of misinformation uh, with, with Mysterio and, and, and playing on misleading people with, you know, him trying to be a hero and using the, the holograms to deceive it and deceiving Peter Parker into giving him the glasses. And it, it plays with some contemporary things of, of false information. So I like that aspect of it. But also I liked the psychological aspect it made Peter Parker confront. Um, we saw that he was clearly mourning Tony Stark's loss at the beginning of the film. And so to have one of the pivotal fight scenes be Mysterio playing against his um, mourning of Tony Stark in that horrific scene of having the zombified Stark come back and haunt Peter like, yeah. was just emotionally wrecking for me. And to start, I know it's towards the end of the film, but to start there is one of the bigger fight moments and then have that moment where he uses his spider senses to finally put an end to all the misinformation and misleading stuff that that Quentin Beck's doing and, and save the day was just such a momentum swing that I appreciate about Far From Home. Yeah, I completely agree. I The first time I saw Far From Home, I was like, oh my gosh, like totally blown away. Like I loved it so much. And uh, at the time, I think I would have ranked it above Homecoming. Uh, with some time, 
and rewatching both of them, they're, they're pretty neck and neck for me when it, come, when it comes to where they land in terms of the, the MCU and as Spider-Man movies. Some days I give the edge to Homecoming uh, for a few reasons. We're going to talk about some of our favorite moments in a couple minutes, and a couple of my favorite moments are from Homecoming. So while Homecoming and Far From Home are pretty neck and neck, and to finish my thought, there are other days where Far From Home has the edge for me for all the reasons that you said and, and the way that it's commenting upon like truth and information and who controls information and Mysterio as a villain. So all of these things. But I'm actually going to surprise myself and some listeners perhaps by choosing Into the Spider-Verse as my favorite movie. And I think it's because Into the Spider-Verse is so incredibly unique. Mm-hmm. And it is so, uh, frankly, it, it's it's a little bit unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable to me that not only did this film come out as a Spider-Man origin story during in 2018 when the MCU was like gearing up for it. It came out right before Infinity War, right? Yes. Yeah. So MCU is gearing up for Infinity War, right? We have Spider-Man in the MCU who people love. Here's another Spider-Man origin story. Yes different a unique play on a spider-man origin story but people loved this movie right fans and critics alike this movie has fan service but it's not condescending and i and i think that that's unbelievable to our comments earlier about the accessibility but also like the depth for anybody who wants it it's there it honors a long legacy of fan knowledge of this character in popular culture but it's not gatekeeping either. It's really, really mm-hmm. unbelievable to me. I mean, from the way that it starts with Peter Parker's narration and the nods to the other movies, including like the dance from Spider-Man 3, but not just that. <laughs> it's like the, 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 the original Spider-Man theme song, the popsicle, the Christmas album, like all of these in-jokes, but it's so accessible. And I surprised myself by even thinking that, by even calling this my favorite because I've talked on the podcast before that I'm definitely partial to live action over animation, but the animation in Into the Spider-Verse is unbelievable. I, I, I feel like I'm watching a comic book come to life or I feel like I'm watching something akin to live action when I watch it. And every time I watch it, I, I love it uh, even more. So I am a really, really big fan of Into the Spider-Verse. The voice actors, Shamik Moore as Miles Morales is incredible. A lot of people in here who have gone on to be in the MCU, Haley Steinfeld, Catherine Hahn as uh, Dr. Uh, is it Octavius? O- Olivia Octavius, right? Uh, Mahar- uh-huh. Mahershala Ali, um, who is going to be Blade. Brian Tyree Henry <laughs> is Miles Morales' dad, and he's a uh, He's Fastos in Eternals. So, so many good voice actors. Jake Johnson, who is not in the MCU, sadly, but uh, who you mentioned before. Someday. Chris Pine. Um, yeah, maybe someday Jake Johnson. He's great. But it, it's just a, a, a fantastic movie in, in so many ways. And I love how it's meta. Um, Spider-Man comics exist in the world. And that's kind of how he learns to be Spider-Man is by like looking at these comics and it's so cool. Yeah, I, I think at some point I need to do a deep dive episode into into the Spider-Verse because there's just so much there that I really, really, really love. Yeah, it, it's it's a special movie. And it's it's definitely the my MCU homerism coming through, picking <laughs> Far From Home or of that nature. Yeah. But it's not to discredit how 
perfect into the Spider-Verses. And just to, to add that little thing, you know, I talked about how I have a soft spot for The Amazing Spider-Man because of when it came out and what it was up against. It is it speaks volumes of Into the Spider-Verse, how much of a cultural footprint it left at the so close to Infinity War, where it's this behemoth's like victory lap that it was still able yeah. to make waves. So, yeah. Well, I think it was so reinvigorating because it kind of proved that like a new superhero world, like a, a new approach to superhero storytelling could be successful and as exciting as something that was the culmination of 10 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so just so awesome and very, very much looking forward to where where that story goes moving forward as well. All right. So I do also want to talk a little bit more about villains. So we mentioned a couple of villains who didn't work for us. But one of the things that Spider-Man is known for as a character in the comics is his rogues gallery. So probably I think Spider-Man would be in conversation with Batman about who has the best, best rogues gallery of villains. What do you think? I think that's a very, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. I, I, th- I think that Batman might still have the edge in terms of like most most compelling villains, but there are really some very, very good Spider-Man villains, and we've seen some great depictions of them in the movies. So if you had to choose top three, who do you got? Top three. Okay. Uh, so coming in, one, two, three, I've got Vulture, number one, uh, Green Goblin, Raimi, number two, and uh, Alfred Molino, Doc Ock, number three. All right. Okay. So no Mysterio on the list. Yeah, no Mysterio. As much as I love what they're doing, it's hard to beat these other two. Uh, other three, I should say. And especially with Vulture sticking within the MCU, it's the Michael Keaton edge. Like, it's oh, yeah. hard to beat Michael Keaton. As as great as Jake Gyllenhaal is, it's Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So what is it about Goblin and Doc Ock that stand out for you? Goblin, I think, goes back to, again, being that window into something more of I'm still new to this superhero universe, but Goblin was just such a menacing force at such a young age that I just, I remember still being afraid of him and and watching uh, Peter Parker face off against him and how menacing he was. So I think it's just, it's such an emotional imprint that it's hard to to separate that character from any of the other villains. And and with Willem Dafoe being such an amazing actor and and what he brought to that character, it's it's also hard to beat. And and then just to round it off with Doc Ock, I mean, Alfred Molina, I, I'm sure this is not the case, but it's just emotional memory. It's It feels like such a nuanced character where you watch somebody who's clearly doing villainous things, but you can understand how he got there. Mm-hmm. So I thought he was just an early example of how you can do nuance to villains uh, again when, when I was uh, a kid watching these. Just for kind of like what he represents in terms of my own experience and familiarity with Spider-Man and the aesthetics of it and like, like I said, going to amusement parks, it's like Universal Studios and Six Flags and like seeing uh, his his iconography. I was thinking about putting Green Goblin on the list, but I, I didn't just because uh, I have had a little bit of a different type of relationship with, with the others. So I, I chose Vulture 1 for nice. the same same reasons as you. I mean, Vulture is Michael Keaton. Vulture is incredibly compelling. I spoke a lot about it on my Spider-Man Homecoming episode. I spoke about it on my like 
uh, top fives episode. He, I think he's one of the, the best villains in the MCU because he is so complex and so real. I chose mm-hmm. Doc Ock as two because I did think that, um, especially for that original trilogy, he really stands out uh, to me for the reasons you, you said as being like a little bit of, to your point, kind of like a, an, an earlier iteration of what the MCU eventually got right, which was to give us some compassion for for the villain, give them a little bit more of a fleshed out story and in, in how they uh, got to that that villainous place and and he really has a connection with peter Uh, well to that point green goblin has a connection with peter as well so i think both green goblin and doc ock could really kind of be here in in this uh in this position i think they're both great and then uh so then i'm kind of copying out by talking about four but but then i so i did vulture doc ock and then three as being mysterio just because i do think that there's something really interesting and exciting to me about this person whose villainous edge is related to illusion and the fact that he was involved. I know in the comics, like he was involved with movie making and you kind of see um, his use of, of like the effects in far from home. And I just love the the style of his look and everything like that. So big, big fan of Mysterio as well. And honorable mention to Sandman. I kind of like Sandman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and from what I remember, it's been a while since I've seen Spider-Man 3. Sandman aesthetically, I think, holds up. Like, I thought it was pretty well done for the time. Yeah, I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it looks bad. I, I kind of feel like Lizard didn't look as good as, as Sandman looked, if I'm remembering yeah, I'm, correctly. I'm glad you brought up how, like, Lizard doesn't look great at all. And we've seen clips of him in no way home and he still doesn't look great like i'm a little <laughs> disappointed they haven't updated him. oh man the lizard the lizard problem <laughs> um all right so we'll finish our discussion today about all things spider-man with discussing our let's say top three although i'm sure we'll have some honorable mention top three favorite moments from any of these spider-man movies so I'll start with what I'm going to call my number three, and then we can go to you for, for your number three, and then we'll kind of count down for these. I'm going to go with my number three being from what I just named as my favorite Spider-Man movie. I'm choosing one moment from Into the Spider-Verse, and I'm ranking it at number three because, frankly, I, I there are many moments from Into the Spider-Verse, which is why I just called it my favorite But if I'm going to isolate one moment and put it here at number three, it's the leap of faith moment uh, where Mm -hmm. Miles Morales is graffitiing the suit and he's hearing voiceovers in his head from conversations he's had when he was asking Peter B. Parker, when do I know I'm Spider-Man? And he says, you won't. That's all it is, Miles, a leap of faith. And he jumps off the building and a track from the soundtrack called What's Up Danger is playing and the animation is so beautiful uh, fantastic moment that connects to the themes of that movie as well as just looks so beautiful. So that would be my number three. Yeah, what a great moment for that film. So I think moving to my number three, uh, I got to go with probably a scene that lives rent-free in my head. Uh, it's uh, Since so much of uh, social media communication is through GIFs, it's a <laughs> GIF that I constantly reach for. Yes. Uh, but luckily it's backed up by, you know, the, the emotion of that scene. And it's Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man stopping the train. There's just something about that moment where it embodies the strength of 
Spider-Man and all the amazing feats that he can do while also capturing an essence of Peter Parker that I don't know if we get to see a lot, but him being revealed to the public and them trusting his secret. And like, there's something special about that connection that Peter has, even unknowingly to most of the public, but a connection he has to the city of New York that I just love that scene so much. So I'll read directly from my notes for my number two moment. The train scene in Spider-Man 2. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Peter saves the people of New York. His mask is off. The people catch him. So, so he, he stops the train. So I'll, I'll stop reading from my notes because it's it's kind of a mess. Um, but I just wanted you to know that this this was exactly what I had uh, for number two for me. So he stops the, the subway car, right? And he doesn't even realize his mask is off and he exerts so much strength. He shows like just how difficult this really is. It's, it's, it's not coming easy to him. This is difficult. And, um, and he's doing it and he's saving these people and doesn't realize his mask is not on. And then he just kind of collapses once the train car stops and they catch him. And it's just like this gentle way in which they catch him and then they carry him and like crowd surf him to the back of the subway car. It's, it's beautiful. I think it's such mm -hmm. a great moment. The little kids who give him his mask and they say that they won't tell his secret. It's really, really lovely to see how, how these people um, respond to him in that moment. And of course we talk about it now, how clearly Tom Holland much more realistically portrays a teenager, especially when he first started in the role uh, than Tobey Maguire did back in Spider-Man 2. But it's still quite touching when the people in the car are like, oh, wow, he's just a kid. He's not even older than my son. Uh, great yeah. moment. Great moment. All right. What do you have for number two? So number two, I've already talked about it in this episode. Uh, the Peter launch from uh, yeah. Far From Home, where he's, you know, he's been battling. He's he's down and out. He's lost his spider webs, and he concocts a way to get back into that uh, bridge to continue the fight. And it just it it embodies that determination of Peter Parker and Spider Man. And you know, I know I framed it. it it's odd to say that was one of my favorite Spider Man moments, and framed it as like it's embodying Thor and Captain America and Iron Man. But what I think special and unique to that Spider-Man is that he gets to be Spider-Man, but we see the influences that have brought him there too. And I think that's just a special thing that, you know, there, there's always going to be new Spider-Man films, whether it's in the MCU or not. This is one of the few chances, I think, that we'll be able to have a connected universe like that. Yeah. So that scene is super special to me. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. And I do love how the MCU has leaned into how can they make their version of Spider-Man unique to, you know, other iterations that we've seen before. And I, their version of Spider-Man is very much operating in the world of his friendly neighborhood as well as the world of the Avengers. And I think you're right that that moment really shows uh, the influence that those that those other heroes would have on him. And I, I love that. Well, because as you know, we, we love the interconnected nature of the MCU. So I love that scene as well. Um, what I have as my number one scene, though, is... The entire sequence of, well, I guess I'll narrow it down a little bit. I guess specifically when Peter Parker is in the car being driven to the homecoming dance by Adrian Toomes and uh, kind of starting with his arrival at the Toomes household when he's there to pick up Liz and Adrian Toomes answers the door and the tension that that moment creates. And then specifically the scene in the car, the way that they interact with each other and that tension between them. And 
it's just really, really suspenseful. And frankly, it was, was a surprise for me the first time I saw the film. I, I didn't see that coming, that he was going to be Liz's father. And uh, maybe I should have, but I didn't. I think I was just so engrossed in the movie. And um, yeah, just everything about their conversation in the car. It reveals so much about who Toombs is. And it reveals a lot about who Peter is. And then specifically the decision that he makes even after the threat from Vulture in the car, he makes the decision to leave the homecoming dance and to do his duty as Spider-Man, to live up to his responsibility as Spider-Man, um, says so much about him. So so that's my number one. Yeah, what an incredible moment. And this is something, just to add to that real quick, because I think it's... It, it's what makes it special in the MCU is it's almost a, a a remake of something we got in the Sam Raimi where Osborne finds yeah. out that Peter is Spider-Man before Spider-Man or before Peter finds out that he's Green Goblin. And what I think the MCU got so brilliantly is that Peters are into this world. So the fact that he has to live with that knowledge before uh, Tombs does is special and then yeah. when they have that moment of the light changing like ugh, it's just shivers right it's so good when he's looking at in the rear view mirror oh man well we've talked about a lot here today I'll be honest Trey this this did go longer than I was originally anticipating but I should have expected <laughs> that before we wrap up anything else on your mind that you're thinking about related to Spider-Man going into next week and the release of No Way Home. I am very excited to see how they handle this being Tom Holland's Peter Parker. You know, so much of the things that we talked about today, I think, were influenced, again, by the relationships that Peter has had with his rivals, his villains, his friends, his romantic interest, and his family. The thing that I am curious to see, because again, I you know I mentioned being a little bit worried, but I, I think you had a good reminder that the MCU has has bought a lot of trust. Um, what I'm interested in going into No Way Home is to see how those relationships take place, because so far everything we know about the villains in this movie are villains from other universes. I'm looking forward to what that connective through line for Peter's relationship to these characters or characters who have yet to be depicted in the trailers, how that will gel as a cohesive film. I, I'm with you, Trey, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about No Way Home after you've seen it and after Jude has seen it. I'm looking forward to... Oh, Jude, by the way, who when asked for some comments for tonight's episode, because unfortunately he couldn't join us, he said, Tom Holland is Spider-Man, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, he's a huge Spider-Man fan. I think that speaks volumes of of where he's at yeah. uh, regarding all of this conversation. It does. It, it kind of just answers everything. <laughs> um, what what we talked about in an hour and a half, Jude just answered in one text. So um, very much, very, very much looking forward to hearing what you think about the new film as well as what Jude thinks about the new film. And in the meantime, and if people are interested in the coverage that you guys have already done about this character and his his appearances in the MCU, as well as any future appearances in the MCU, where can people find your show? 
Yeah, if you want to hear more, we release weekly on Mondays. Uh, MC You Need to Know on whatever podcast platform of your choice. Uh, and right now we're covering Hawkeye, but we definitely will have our Spider-Man No Way Home quick reactions. Most likely that uh, Monday, if not Tuesday, uh, after it comes out. So if you want to learn, you want to follow more, a great place to check would be mcuneedtoknow.com. You can find all the links to that there. Thanks, Trey. Thank you. This was so much fun. If you enjoyed this conversation about Spider-Man and you, like me and like Trey, cannot wait for Spider-Man No Way Home, please consider following the podcast at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can find Trey and his co-host Jude at MCU Need to Know. All links are available on mcuneedtoknow.com. Artwork was designed by Brooke Pender, who you can follow on Instagram at D-E-L-T-A dot M-U-S-H. And music by Demeter Salvia, who you can find on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening and stay tuned in a couple of days for my take on Hawkeye episode four with a couple of guests. And after that, coming up soon, my first impressions of Spider-Man No Way Home. Hi, any better now? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's showing that there's two of me in here now. That's totally fitting for our (laughs) Spider-Man Isn't it? (laughs) How do I delete one of me, though? Because I don't want to... We might need Doctor Strange. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. Oh, okay. One of of me just signed off. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have no idea how that happened.